in a world full of straight people. Aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. Start your engines and join me in the new mobile game, RuPaul's Drag Race Superstar. May the best superstar win. Available now. We have a legitimate legend on the show today. A comedy True legend. Icon. Uh, I started Bo rattling off these credits it. last night to yeah. Michael. Carol is Carol Burnett here? No, Stan. Even shh, better. Shh, shh. We haven't gotten to you yet. Even better than Carol Burnett. Even better than Carol Burnett. I mean, uh, okay, let's... You 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 reviewed the, uh, the uh, credits last, last night at night. dinner. Let's I said, it. Michael, listen to the credits of tomorrow's guest. He's written on the Golden Girls, Roseanne, mm -hmm. Ilmore mm -hmm. Girls. Most importantly, a very Brady sequel. Yeah. He's also got uh, a new book coming out on February thirteenth. It's called The Girls from Golden to Gilmore. Stories uh -huh. about all the wonderful women he's worked with. His name is Stan Zimmerman, and he's here. You may talk, Stan. Welcome. You may talk. You may speak. Now I can talk. Okay. Actually, I wrote uh, for both Brady Bunch movies. Uh, oh. There's a crazy Writers Guild rule that after four groups of writers, you don't get credit, unfortunately, uh -huh. even though the producers um, and the studio petitioned the WGA for that. It's a crazy rule. I don't think it makes much sense. So unless you change the structure of a screenplay, and by the time we got on it, all the scenes were there uh, because they had mm. already scheduled the shootings. But Betty Thomas, the great Betty Thomas, said, you can change anything within that structure of that location. And we went to town, as you can tell in the movie, and we just went crazy. And I have to say that was one of the most fun jobs because uh, it, it brought all of my love for pop culture, uh, obviously pushing my gay agenda, and yeah. getting <laughs> RuPaul who is not even was barely known into yeah. uh, having a drag performer in a major studio movie was, I mean, kind of unheard of back then. And do I get any thank you at the Emmys? Nothing. Ooh. Yeah. God, wow. everybody else, Stan, no, nothing. Wow. So we're thanking well, you today. We're thanking you for your service, Stan okay. Zimmerman. Truly, truly. Uh, those movies were, it's, it's, like they were revolutionary at the time they they were it wasn't it, it now it's sort of part of the culture to sort of to to be nostalgic in that way and to like exhume something from 20 years before and sort of you know point out the how how different things are or whatever but that that had not happened until until the real life brady bunch and then the brady bunch movies yes uh so Sherry Lansing, who was president of Paramount, I don't think quite got what Betty Thomas wanted to do and the kind yeah. of um, the themes we wanted to touch and just the style of it and the voice of it. So she was like, yeah, here's $15 million, which, you know, was pretty small back even then. And it wasn't until the first screening that she went to and she was like, oh, my God, that's what you wanted to do. And then by then it was too late. And then the first weekend just blew up into this huge movie. But back then, you know, uh, like they had done the Beverly Hillbillies, they tried different adaptations from uh, TV shows to movies and they were not successful. And I think this one worked because Betty said, do three things. Do it for kids that have never seen Brady Bunch, do it for people that grew up with Brady Bunch, and then do it for stoners. And yeah. so I was two of the three. Mm. And mm -hmm. um, you can guess which ones. And... Yeah. <laughs> uh, we went for that. And a lot of the jokes went over the kids' heads, but the parents got them. And I think, you know, that's why it's also aged so well. And, you know, lines like Sure Jan are now very popular memes because 
with our crazy politics uh, and politicians, that's pretty much all you can say. I mean, look at Nikki mm. Haley. You know, we're not in a racist country. Oh, yeah. what? Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. <laughs> yes. Sure, Jan. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, and it was so it was so comforting to those of us in Generation X who who had seen every episode five times just because we were, you know, after school parked in front of the TV with a bowl of Fritos. We had to watch a bowl. I love you put them in a bowl. Did you put milk on them too? No, that's disgusting. No, that's Stan. Gross, Dan. No <laughs> ice cream mixed in there. Uh, we had to watch all of the episodes again. And I don't know about you, but I always thought Alice was really funny. She yeah. had no funny lines. It was all just kind of that, you know, that smirk that she did. Just that great so, mug, yeah. Yeah, she had a good mug. And so, uh, but you know, we did a lot of crazy things. So there was this rumor going around that Ambi Davis was a lesbian. So I don't know if you know, but in the movie, we made her a truck driver. Sure. And the right? other gay things, we we desperately wanted to do a scene with the dad slash Robert Reed uh, sneaking into a gay bar in West Hollywood in the middle of the night. That never made it into it, but we we, we certainly wrote it a lot of drama. <laughs> but we felt it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we had, um, you know, Marsha and uh, her her friend in bed together. Yeah. 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 Was wasn't there Alice in like fetish gear sort of tiptoeing oh, somebody through the back of a it. scene? Yes. Oh yeah. Did. Yes. Yeah. Uh God almighty. Classics. And so Jean Smart, she said the line oh, she, had, she was in the middle of the two boys and she says, Oh, I'm in a Brady sandwich, which I don't think you could probably get away with today. Uh because mm -hmm. they were underage, but uh there you have it. My God. My God. The, I mean there's so there's so much to get into, but let's 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 start with what you are watching right now. What does a Stan Zimmerman watch, and how does a Stan Zimmerman watch? Uh, lying prone in bed in MSNBC most of the time. I'm okay. a real political junkie, and you know I did give it up after Hillary lost. I just was so disheartened, like most of us, and I kind of turned off the TV. And um, then when the whole Russia thing kind of bubbled up. I had mm -hmm. actually spent 2015, four months in Moscow, helping them develop a Russian Roseanne show. Wow. That's a whole other show. But Oh my, uh, well, I mean, it can be this show. It can be this show. I was so scared to death to go there. I don't know, I mean, how serious you want to get in this, but um, a lot of friends uh, said, be very careful because there were all these videos going around about groups that would harass gay people there. And uh, you know, find them on an app, go to their apartment, film them, you know, doing horrible things. So I went with a lot of trepidation. I kept hoping I would get a job in the States and not have to go, but I'm so glad I did. I met great people. I went to gay bars there and I'm in a gay bar in Moscow. And it, to me, it looked like, you know, I was in St. Paul or something. And, mm. um, you know, uh, there are a lot of brave LGBTQ plus people there. I was, you know, if I saw someone trans, you know, walking in the subway, I was like, wow. I mean, that it's, you know, we think it's difficult here, but imagine in Moscow where it's outlawed and, yeah. you know, you cannot even bring it up. So I was a little afraid and I asked Sony that question. What happens if someone says, well, what episode did you write on Roseanne? I couldn't say the lesbian kiss episode because that would be propagating LGBTQ rights and that's illegal. Uh, there. So um, I walked a fine line. Yeah. Well, Can I, we... what, what became of Russian Roseanne? Uh, yeah. It never happened. So uh, Everybody Loves Raymond is done there. There was a great documentary that Phil Rosenthal made of his experience. He was one of the first shows that went over there. And what they do is first they translate the exact scripts we wrote on the shows. And then then you have to adapt them. So it's translating and adapting are two things. You know, you can go word for word translation, but they have different customs and things. So like for in the initial seasons of Roseanne, Jackie was a police officer. Well, they don't have a lot of female police officers. Also, when I got there, uh, I didn't know I was going to have to kind of oversee casting. So I knew the story of Roseanne because I loved her back when I saw her the first time on Johnny Carson. And I remember calling our agent and saying, who is this woman? Like, we would love to develop a show for her. And our agent at the time said, 
America would never do a series with a fat woman. That was that was the response, which is pretty horrible. But you know, she was discovered in comedy clubs. First, she was a funny waitress, and they said you should do stand up, and then she did stand up, and that's how her uh, whole world exploded. So I went to Russia, saying, "Send me to every Russian comedy store, and I'll find the equivalent." They don't have comedy clubs in Russia. Maybe they should. So we started auditioning actors, and I went to uh, the Moscow Art Theater where Stanislavski created, you know, method acting. Mm-hmm. And I would see, you know, like a Russian version of um, Streetcar Named Desire, called in an actor. A lot of the actors didn't want to come in. They take acting serious, and they just thought television was beneath them. So we did a lot of tests. I found actually a super cool woman who's kind of a dance singing artist, and she's one of the few people that are supportive of LGBTQ rights there, which is kind of scary to do. And uh, mm-hmm. we had her come in and we did some screen tests, but ultimately they did not make the show, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I also helped them develop. Yet, yeah, I also helped them develop a, a Russian Mary Tyler Moore show. And they did not understand the concept of why, I don't know if you remember the pilot, she's 30 years old and she turns down a marriage proposal, which was big back in the 70s. Well, mm-hmm. it's still big today in Moscow. And they just could not understand, like, why would a woman not want to get married? This is her last chance before, you know, being an old maid. Right. Um, but I still had a fabulous time. I got a woman hired to write that pilot. And... The networks there thought, well, women can't be funny. We have to, you know, combine her with a male comedy writer. Sound familiar? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so there you go. We jumped God. way ahead into all. I of mean, uh, yeah. we we're, we are willing to follow you wherever <laughs> okay. you would like to go. Uh, absolutely. Okay. We want to go through every chapter of your career, but. I'm curious what you're feeling. I mean, we're recording this in mid-January. It's it's this is sort of the moment where people are getting back to work in this industry for for real for the first time since the strikes. So how are you feeling, you know, as you look around at the landscape and how things have sort of shaken out? Well, uh Jim and I had written a lifetime Christmas movie uh right before the strike. We had gotten a job the end of March and you know the strike started May 1st so we had to write a complete movie within that time frame and I think it might not have gotten made uh, you know because networks you know like to piddle with your words and I think they would have just picked it apart because it was so unlike any Lifetime Christmas movie it was called Ladies of the 80s and it starred Donna Mills, Morgan Fairchild, Linda Gray, Nicolette Sheridan and Lonnie Anderson yeah um, yeah, so that was really fun to write. Uh, unfortunately, we it was during the strike that they filmed it between the strike and the uh, actor strike. Uh, so we were not allowed to go on set. Um, so that was kind of sad that we couldn't be a part of that. But now I'm just hoping, you know, all my friends that are, that are writers are going back to work and we can go back to making series. My focus now has really been on theater and marrying art and advocacy in live theater. I'm not opposed to doing TV. I would love to take, you know, uh, we have a script called Silver Foxes that we tried to make as a series logo initiated it. We did a kind of a famous reading in my living room. I do a lot of readings in my living room. Um, it was the late Leslie Jordan, George Decay, Bruce Valanche, Sherry O'Terry. Melissa Peterman, Todd Sherry, Daniel Gaither. I mean, it was insane. And still, wow. Lifetime couldn't get their shit together to make that as a series. We went out with it. Not one network would even open it to read it because it oh. was gay people and old people. And I could stand on the mountaintop and yell, but what about Golden Girls? They, I mean, I had even streaming companies. The development person said, it wasn't broad appeal enough, meaning that I guess in their mind, only gay people watch gay shows, only old people watch old people shows. It's just simply not true. And we have to get out of this ghettoizing of, of entertainment. 
when I grew up, I watched Sanford and Son and Good Times. And uh, my favorite variety show was the Flip Wilson show. I mean, you just, you watch because something's funny or interesting or grabs you or not because of who they love or the color of their skin. That just seems so ridiculous. So really? we did turn wow. it into a play okay. um, mm -hmm. on the advice of, uh, well, I know Lucille Ball did that when, when um, CBS wouldn't allow her to cast Desi Arnaz because America wouldn't buy a white woman with a Latin husband. She says, you know, I don't think she said fuck you, but she took it on the road and oh, it I think became she said, so popular you. that they were like, well, they're buying it. So we turned it into play. We world premiered it in Dallas this past year, sold out before we opened. Uh, the great Michael Yuri uh, directed it and we had a blast. It's going to be the second full production will be done at Evolution Theater in Dublin, Ohio. They actually have an LGBTQ ah. theater company. So I'm going to go in for the opening on September 6th. I'm not involved with it, but I want to go support it. And we're hoping to get it to New York and eventually a series. So we're kind of going the back way around that it will become so popular that um, the networks will have no choice but to make it as a TV series. We need it. I mean, how many times does that have to happen to network executives before they realize, like, we actually don't know what we're talking about? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, mean I, I wanted to be a network executive one, at one point when Bob Greenblatt went over to NBC and he just did not take me seriously. I thought we should have writers, creative people in those jobs because I had started a TV network in my bedroom when I was you know, 11, 12 years old, as one does. And um, I think, which I, I kind of like what streaming companies do a little bit more of, not all, but that they hire their creative person and let them be creative. You yeah. don't need mm -hmm. to pick apart every little word. I mean, even in our Lifetime movie, we got notes like, well, the main character's name, I, we don't like the name. I said, well, it's my niece's name. Because they were like, who would name their kid that? Well, my sister mm -hmm. did. Just, mm -hmm. That's what's important to you? I mean, to me, like, just let me have that one. Like, you know, pick apart the structure of the story. You don't understand that. Or, But uh, anyway, that's, you know, and that's one of the reasons why Theater is just more fun to me now because I get to pick the actors and the music and do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not second guessing, especially in network television. They're so scared. And I've worked on a lot of new shows. Luckily, Golden Girls hit right away. So then the network kind of you know, disappeared as far as notes. Uh, Roseanne, by the time we got on it, she would not allow the networks to give any notes. They were not allowed on stage that even Carsey Warner, the producers by that year were banned from the set, which is crazy. And even Gilmore Girls, Amy Sherman Palladino, you know, she was you know, famous for, you know, kind of getting in fights with Warner Brothers. And so they kind of let her be. And I think that's why you see those, especially those three shows are so distinctive. So you would think they would learn, let artists have their voice yeah. and you'll get distinctive. Yeah product and content it is the distinctive things that break through in the hugest way it's not you know yeah it's it, it, it it's seinfeld and roseanne and things that are that you would not think would catch on that explode and change all of the rules and i don't know why executives are like this but let's talk about your tv network when you were okay. 11, 12 years old. yes thank you uh what were the call letters what was your sort of development strategy let's <laughs> I was, start wherever you like. I was very intense. So I was getting variety uh, subscriptions sent to my house when I was 10 years old in Detroit, a suburb wow. of Detroit. And I would memorize the movie grosses, all the ratings of the TV shows, every theater box office grosses, and what shows were at which theaters in Broadway. Anyway, so I created this theater and um, I had heard of uh, Howard Hughes had something called the Hughes Network, which is now a streaming company the Hughes it's a you know a cable thing that you can get hmm. so and I thought well Howard Hughes is rich and famous he'll he'll um, finance my network so it was the Hughes network and I had a logo HTN and uh, I would draw ads and then I would pick um, I would develop TV shows so I loved I was obsessed with Lily Tomlin and at that time she did maybe one variety show every couple of years I was like no Lily, you got to be on, on weekly television. 
So mm-hmm. I gave her her own weekly variety show, which, you know, I think was a pretty smart move. Yeah, um, and if a TV show uh, got canceled, like Taxi did, and I thought it deserved another place, it came onto my network, and then ABC actually did that. I was also obsessed with Love American Style. Sure. So they did, uh, you know, there were little vignettes. To me, they seemed like TV pilots. And there was a TV pilot done with an actor, Harold Gould, who was actually a guest on Golden Girls, and Ron Howard. It was called Love in the Good Old Days. And I had just seen American Graffiti. And I thought, well, that's a TV show. So I put the good old days on my network. All of a sudden, I see Happy Days come on ABC. I go running down to my mother. I'm like, did you go through my drawer and tell somebody? I was like, someone's sneaking in here and taking my ideas. So I felt I was on the right track. And I would yeah. post um, you know, interviews uh, uh, from my bedroom uh, in my mind. Um, so I probably should have seen a therapist at the time. But um, it just- Yeah, were, was this everything a solo endeavor? Nobody, were you ever interviewing? No, nobody no. knew. It was all- I had it actually under a lock and key in, in my drawer, uh, but all the, I would cut up pictures like Lily and then make the ad around it. And I obviously had a lot of free time because I was not out playing sports. And yeah. um, my bedroom was my sanctuary, my safe place. You know, outside of it, I was being bullied. Inside the bedroom, I was singing Cool from West Side Story and sliding on my shag carpet. And my mother would look and go, Why is the carpet flat in a certain area? Well, that's, <laughs> That's why I slid for cool. That's you know? my runway. I have room for that move. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I I I love this, and it's you know, I mean, you, your your destiny was laid out for you by by you. Yeah. So that's why when I got to LA, and it happened really really fast. I mean, within a year, uh, we were on staff for a TV show, and it went from what seemed like a long time for me. I was working um, assistant manager at the Vista Movie Theater. You know, people struggle for years, but luckily within that, like six months, suddenly we were offered two TV shows. One we probably should have picked. It was a Madeline Kahn ABC series, and I love Madeline Kahn. Oh, Madeline? uh, Mm. Oh, Madeline, yeah. Uh, But our mentor had um, was working for Larry and Chuck Gordon on a, and their pilot got picked up. So we felt some obligation, so we took that, and that was our trajectory yeah for the the show didn't last and then we did a bunch of freelance episodes one was an episode of fame that janet jackson starred in and it was her first music video and debbie allen directed it called dream street was the music video i remember being at well it was ended up being revolver you know it just started having music videos and all of a sudden my tv show came up there and it was the song uh, from the episode and then the next season we got golden girls and, you know, I would say never look back, but I was always looking back and looking forward and really appreciating, you know, being that young and having a steady job and on that kind of show and being kind of the first of our group to have real jobs and to buy a house and, and all of that. I know we need to buy the book for the, the real, yeah. you know, the juiciest anecdotes, but favorite yes. Golden Girls memory. Well, luckily in college, I started taking, uh, keeping a journal. And so I kept journals during, from college through every show, I would come home and write a lot. And so what I did for this book, the first step was taking all the journal entries about the shows and the women, pulling those out. So it's really interesting to look at how I felt back then, as opposed to now, the ideas I had, because I was very close with Estelle Getty. And then at the time I didn't, really loved the way that Betty White was treating Estelle when she would forget her lines on set. I knew mm. how traumatized Estelle was at every filming. So I was very protective of her. And then I see it just, you know, you look at life differently as you get older. Golden Girls was, you know, it was a great show and loved the characters and loved writing for it. And what a thrill it was to see those, the best of the best saying your lines. But working on the job was not fun. We were still uh, in the closet, told to stay in the closet on the show. Estelle was, and I write about this a lot in the book, Estelle was the only one that knew we were gay. And um, she had good gaydar. 
And um, she identified us right away, uh, but she promised to keep our secret, which is young people are kind of shocked by that because they think Golden Girls was such a progressive show. But remember, we were the first season of it back then. Yeah. So it was before Mark Cherry. And, you know, as Mark has been nice and acknowledged, we, we, we paved the yellow brick road for him uh, <laughs> to get there at Jamie Wooten. And they didn't, you know, in most shows, you get uh, director's chairs with your names on them. Everybody had them except me and Jim. And I know we were just staff writers, but I learned a lot about running shows and how much would that have cost to them to have two more chairs with their names on it. It made us feel like we belong there. And we never really did. Mm. All right. Uh, okay. I just, I just want to, I just want to, I just want to, jump around a little bit uh as an 11 year old network executive uh so really a lifetime network a network executive for a lifetime not a night lifetime network executive what network is doing well now what network is is actually doing their slate properly i mean i seem to be watching most the hbo max i don't love that Uh they went to max but um nobody does i no one does, it seems. Nobody crazy. does. I mean, I'm still sad about that logo, that there's not been a big gay network, that, there, that the LGBTQ couldn't have been like what Lifetime is for women. Make mm. popular entertainment. They should have made something like Silver Foxes or turned that into, taken, started with reruns of Will and Grace or, you know, different gay shows that were on or even... Bring back Love Sydney, um, the Tony Randall show, one of the first yeah. gay shows, which we wrote a spec script for. And I got to tell Susie Kurtz that, who was uh, in the show. That still hasn't happened because I think people yeah. would just have loved to have watched that, all people. And then I think, you know, I guess I still think like a network executive, I still think there is an area for the, you know, broadcast networks to come back. But again, embracing artists to create, you know, um, I grew up on Norman Lear and, um, I luckily got to meet him a few years ago. I never thought I would, but I'm really glad I didn't got to tell him what he meant to me. And after his death, I even think now more, that's why I'm so obsessed with marrying art and advocacy together. I think growing up with seeing what he made and bringing social issues into popular entertainment and comedy and being able to laugh. Um, so I would like to continue that in my own little way. Um, but I still think there's hope. I mean, I was so sad when they let Saturday nights go from the network. I'm like, just give it to us sitcom creators. Well, we could bring people back or even TGIF. Like what a great place it would be. Uh, so I still think they could, uh, I think, you know, they run scared. And um, right. unfortunately, that's kind of where we're at with that. Yeah. Who would be the Tony Randall in Love, Sydney in 2024? Um, you. Yeah? Okay, great. There you Perfect. go. Done. That's yeah, exactly right? what I was okay. fishing for. I know. I, I knew it. you wanted that. <laughs> yep. Uh, but Love, Sydney, I mean, that even that in its time was extremely controversial. I think it was just his sexuality was... It was strictly like there was a picture of him and a and a late partner on a mantle or something. That was it. You couldn't say that was it. gay. Yeah. But look at the lesbian kiss episode. ABC said to Roseanne and Tom, we're not going to, you can't film it. And they said, we're filming it. So they filmed it. They made the kiss as short as possible. They shot it from the back of her head. And they said, we're not going to air it. And to the credit of Roseanne and Tom, you know, no matter what you think of them now, um, they said, if you don't air it, we will buy it back and pay for time on HBO and air it. So they were really strong allies at the time when they didn't have to be. And it was just so crazy living through that whole controversy and going to work and then coming home if we were home by 11 o'clock and watching the evening news. And it was the story on the news. And uh, then we had a big benefit, at, um, which was then Studio One, a benefit for GLAAD on the big screen and we had you know hundreds and hundreds of people there and when that kiss happened the roar from the mm. the people there 
because we had never seen that. And it was a victory. And you know what? We woke up the next morning. Television was still there. <laughs> you know, it didn't <laughs> blow up. Everything was fine. The ratings were huge. And you could go on. And that, I think, led to things like Ellen and Will and Grace, um, you know, because it was okay. It was fine. The sponsors didn't run away. They actually came to, more to Roseanne. Right. You know, it's, I, I recently rewatched it. I guess it was a 2020 or something with Ellen after uh, the sitcom had been canceled and they interview her and they interview Bob Iger, who said it was just too much. Like every episode became about her being a lesbian. If you watch Seinfeld, it's not all about being heterosexual. And it's like, from today's perspective, you're like, yeah, it fucking is like literally yeah, every absolutely. episode of that show is about him and a woman like not seeing eye to eye and whatever. They don't call it out, but mostly Ellen didn't either. It was just, you know, she was because just women. Because unfortunately, the world, the base is straight. Everything right. else is mm -hmm. off that. I'm like, well, who chose that? I mean, yeah. why? We're all different bases. Can't love be the base? And Thank you. Yeah. God. God uh, damn it. God damn it. Uh, I also, this, uh, you reminded me of like the Melrose place where poor, you know, gay character Matt finally got a kiss, but they, they like did, didn't show it. Like their heads moved together and then the camera panned over to Andrew Shu who watched it. And that's, we were just supposed to know what was happening because Andrew right. Shu looked And before shocked. us, uh, 30 something had David Marshall Grant in bed. Oh yeah. Just in bed. <laughs> yeah. And that was a huge thing that uh, they were scared to show. Ooh. And Roseanne wasn't gay, you know? But mm -hmm. what we wanted to do was show the ripple effect, not realizing the real ripple effect that uh, it would have in the world. We were just thinking in, you know, Lampert, but it, uh, it obviously, you know, hit a nerve with people. Yeah, hmm. and, and even that as, you know, as, as timid as it was, was progress. You know, like those, those little, like David Marshall Grant, like that's, it's a half step, but it was, it was a step, right? Yeah. And I, one before thing that, I there was nothing. Nothing. One thing I didn't like that she did, and I did voice it. I, I, I found my voice once we came out. Roseanne does a thing after she wipes her mouth. And I said, well, isn't that negating the whole thing? Why does she have to wipe her mouth like it was, like it was weird or gross? And I, I fought the good fight, but they were like, oh, it's funny. But that taught me something else. Just because something's funny doesn't mean you put it in a script. And I mm -hmm. have used that when I run shows. Um, yeah, sometimes we have to take jokes out because if they hurt people or they're not right with the character or just they're putting out the, you know, words are powerful and images are powerful. So to me, that image, I still kind of cringe at that. But I think it's, you know, part of my story and part of, of the gay history on television story. Yeah. What was the messaging that you were getting about gay people outside of Detroit at, uh, as and a growing up? year old executive? Yeah. I was bad. I was wrong. I mean, everywhere you went. I mean, even right. uh, little things when I went to summer theater camp and... Um, I came home with a note saying I needed to go buy ballet shoes for the final big production. And my mother happily took me to get them, but then she said, hide them under your bed so your father doesn't see them until you're wearing them in the show. And then, so yes, she was protecting me, but think of what that does. There's already shame around artistic expression. And then I went on stage and the audience just like, I did something funny and they roared and I was, you know, lauded for that and loved for it. And he saw that and he saw me blossom as a person. Um, and then it was like, well, what can he do after the fact? Um, but yes, it was all around us, as you know, growing up, uh, it was negative. You die. And then, you know, living in New York and then the whole AIDS thing. And I remember being on the subway and, and, in acting school and a fellow student told us on the subway, I have it. I mean, there wasn't even a name for it. And um, that was the first person. And we just kind of rode the subway silently. Um, so again, that was, you know, 
part of our history. Another big part of your personal history is the role that women have played. And obviously that applies to your professional life. I mean, that's it, that the title of the book, but what, tell us about the important women, you know, from your childhood. There's your mom, obviously. Yes. Um, without getting too sad, but um, she was my biggest cheerleader. And uh, she unfortunately passed two years ago. And that's just, I don't know if, if either of you have dealt with grief, but um, I talk about that a lot in the book too. And unfortunately that gave me the ending of my book, dealing with it and journaling about uh, the last 13 days of her life in hospice. So if that can help anybody, I wish I had known more about grief then. Um, even I'm still figuring it out, watching TikToks with uh, doulas that, um, you know, watching, we celebrate birth, but we don't celebrate the way out. Um, and not knowing the sounds that a person makes or what if they're not eating, that's part of the process. But in your mind, you're thinking, I'm starving my mother to death. No, that's part of it. But I was very lucky. And uh, after my parents divorced, my mother and I would just hang out and she was like obsessed with movies. Uh, my father only as a child only let me see one movie a weekend. I don't know what he thought would happen, but whatever <laughs> his fear was, it happened. Uh, <laughs> I went into entertainment, um, but she was like, let's go to these weird little indie movies in Detroit. And so we started just seeing like Paul Mazursky movies and she took me to see Next Stop Greenwich Village with Ellen Green from little shop, but before, um, and that came in the idea of like, oh, wow, I could go to New York and become an actor. So she taught me all that kind of stuff. And she really supported my journey. And although she couldn't afford uh, to send me to NYU, she said, if you really, really, really want to do it, I got in there after auditioning, I was set to go to U of M, like all my family, but she said, if this is what you want to do, be strong about it. Tell me, go think about it. So I walked down the hall to my bedroom, sat on my bed. Three seconds later, I was back at her door and I go, I want to do this. And she goes, then we're going to figure out how to find you the money. And um, yeah, and luckily she moved out here to Santa Barbara and was able to come to a lot of the tapings of Golden Girls, Roseanne. I have a picture for, I think in the book, of, on the set of Roseanne sitting on the couch. I'm like, just don't talk to her, please. Um, I mean, we were told, don't let Roseanne see the whites of your eyes or otherwise she'd fire you. So I would always be hiding behind the tallest person to, to not get fired. Ultimately, the lesbian kiss episode made us stand out. And I remember we were on set for a, a, just a run through. And she was like, who wrote this script? It's fucking funny. And all the writers part and we're just like, it was like going to the Wizard of Oz and we're just like shaking, going up to her. Yeah, it's like fucking funny. And so then she knew who we were. And um, so then when we became kind of Tom's guys, he would run through the halls going, where are my gay guys? Which I don't think you could do nowadays. You'd probably have a, a unemployment, unemployment lawsuit. So they got divorced and we kind of got stuck in the middle of that whole thing. How do you, how do you define grief? Because it is a thing beyond sorrow, and it, it's. Well, they say that no two people experience the same ways. You have good days and you have bad days. Um, I'm also uh, been traveling in the United States doing a, uh, my first play that was published called Right Before I Go, and it's a play uh, about using real suicide notes, and it was created after a very close friend of mine died by suicide. I'm doing it this weekend in Austin, actually. Um, so I have put myself in dealing with it on stage in front of people. And it's only an hour play and we do a, a 20 minute talk back with the local mental health professional. And at the talk back, I always get asked, are you okay? How do you keep doing this? And it actually empowers me, even though it's tough and my glasses fill with tears. Still, when I say his name in the play, it gets stuck right here. And now when I talk about my mom in the play, it just has a whole other meaning. But the play has given me meaning. And um, I wish I could do it every weekend because I know it has saved lives. I've gotten emails from parents that have 
brought their children seven years ago. And, you know, we talk about living for what's around the corner. It's a very hopeful play. It's, it may sound depressing, but there is humor and it's very hopeful about living for what's around the corner. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that have seen it are now living around the corner. Talk to us about your early experiences with dating once you came out. <laughs> uh, how about now? It's still the same thing. Um, you know, there was just uh, a big stigma. I remember going to New York and meeting this tall, beautiful, blonde, Aryan, uh, I think it was a year older than me. And I had this idea that you had to be in love to have sex. I know it sounds really corny. And I remember we met at some NYU party and he took me into Washington Square Park and we're making out and he wanted to take me back to his dorm room. And I made him tell me he loved me before I would go. Oh. I know you're going, oh, that's so cute. It's embarrassing. Yeah. No. Um, oh. And then everyone, and then of course, you know, two days later, he didn't even return my call. Um, and then my friends had to explain, no, Stan, you know, they were saying in the gay world, um, you can have sex and it can be different than being in love. Uh, and that was just kind of a new concept. And then later, and I talked about this in the book about my friend, Allie Willis, who passed, uh, four years ago, she wrote the color purple and boogie wonderland in September. And, uh, in a very interesting relationship with a woman that it wasn't necessarily sexual the way I saw it. And I, at the time, as a young person, I was like, what do you mean? But they were life partners. They had something even deeper. And through them, I got to see there are many kinds of relationships. Um, also losing the judgment. I always felt as a New Yorker, you had to be kind of judgy to be funny and sarcastic. And then I came to LA and I started reading Shirley MacLaine and going to Louise Hay's sessions. I'm like, oh no, you can be spiritual and open and loving and also be really fucking funny and sarcastic and all of that. Um, I mean, I have always found dating really difficult it, for whatever reason. I, I don't look at it, you know, some people say, oh, I found my better half. I never thought, like that always scared me. I didn't want to lose half of myself. I think my philosophy is, no, if you can get 200%, that's even bigger. Uh, I have experienced love. I had a, a great love for five and a half years. It ended uh, not great. And uh, he didn't leave me with any help or resolution and just kind of split and said, you know, you're on your own. I need to be selfish. And that was really, really, really tough. Um, I went to therapy. I went to, I, I threw myself into, I was not going to sit back and, you know, cocoon. And I was like speed dating. And I mean, every, I did everything, you know, and I have to say during COVID, I never thought I would date again. I mean, there was just that, how do you be intimate after COVID? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, navigating that, that whole world, um, and just loving my work and, and uh, I don't know, sometimes I feel maybe I'm not, that's not meant to be part of my life, you know, that my life is creating these families of through work, either TV shows or theater families that I get so much love from that maybe it's not a one-on-one -on -one thing. But I'm still open, I'm still looking. So if you, if you know anybody, um, you know, it's, it's fun. To, I love meeting people and, um, yeah, it's been the one thing, like everything else in my life, I kind of planned out and knew, and this is like that one kernel there, like, huh. So if anybody listening is a therapist well, or, or has ideas, yeah, <laughs> um, there might be I'm some ideas, you know, if there are any listeners whose ears are perking up and they're thinking about sliding into the DMS who, who, who need apply? What are the qualifications? Uh, first is kindness. I have to say, um, I learned nice and kind are two different things and I, I need kindness or I wouldn't feel safe. Um, Explain. Because What's... I, I'm very sensitive 
and very vulnerable. And I think when you're vulnerable, you open yourself up and I don't want to be mistreated or trampled on. I want that to be, you know, and then I grew up with so much shame, body shame. I'm still dealing with it. I felt so ugly. I don't know where I got that idea. And it's funny in pulling pictures for the book, I look at myself younger and I'm like, oh wait, you were cute. And I would call my friends like, why didn't you tell me? And they said, we did, but I just didn't believe it. And I did write a play about that. Like why we can't appreciate the way we look when we are there looking that way. It takes looking back. So that's something I'm just working on and, and pushing myself into areas to accept um, my body this, the way it is. And as you know, also the toughness of growing older and you know, maintaining that or however you want it to look and, you know, living in Hollywood and having, or just opening your phone now and seeing, yeah, I'm not going to be the fitness model person. Uh, I'll, even if I see that in my head, um, but kindness, sense of humor, um, curiosity about the world. I would love some, some sense of style, uh, being a Libra. And I just love the beauty of the world and architecture and, mountains uh i'm here in palm springs now directing a play and i just step out and these mountains are just and then combine that with the gorgeous mid-century homes it's just a, a stunning place to be yeah i, I want to back up what what it, to you is the difference between niceness and kindness i feel like niceness is just you're being polite because mm -hmm. you read it somewhere or emily post or whoever um where right. kindness comes from here and uh, what people have said is my through line of all my work is there's a heart to it. They feel a heart to it. So I would love to find someone that that comes first. And, and I have said that I feel like my heart, that's the one part of my body, it's almost like a female heart. I just feel it has a female energy to it. Um, I just always have felt I just feel about other people uh, and that comes through in, in the work that I want to do, whether it's about, you know, the struggle my friend had um, not wanting to be alive or the version of Diary of Anne Frank that I've done uh, through the lens of dealing with immigration uh, south of the border. Just seeing those kids from the last idiot person in the White House um, mm -hmm. separating kids from their parents just, just just ripped me apart and and just seeing the continued racism in this country it's just I, I just i can't bear it it's just and so i just have to keep speaking about it or writing about it or directing plays about it um I, it, otherwise i'll feel helpless so i feel through what i have to offer is my craft and that's so to me that seems the most important if i can do that um, and maybe people and men see that as number one. And so where do they fit into that? I'm sure that a, a therapist could uh, come up with many hours <laughs> in that arena. You're obviously a therapy person, but I got to say, I'm struck just in this, you know, first conversation I'm having with you now, if, if you would ask me what I expect from, you know, a gay man with this resume who has accomplished these things, I I would anticipate, you know, a real level of cynicism that, you know, we don't, I don't feel with you. There, like, there's just a refreshing, you know, vulnerability. Obviously you're still hilarious, but you mentioned Louise Hay, you know, my spiritual spidey senses went off. Mm -hmm. Say more about that realm of your life well we were back in the day when marianne williamson was just coming up and a group of my friends mostly gay friends we would go see her speak for free at a church on um i think hollywood boulevard and then we would go for dinner and have wine and just dissect everything we just never heard those concepts of um leading with love you know like that she said you had two choices in life love or fear and it was like it's so simple <laughs> it's so simple mm. you know i was living fear of my body or fear of being rejected, all this stuff. But I also put that in my work uh, to bring up Swoosie Kurtz again. Um, 
she had taken me to uh, as her date uh, to a Cherry Jones uh, benefit thing. And she was like in the limo, how do you do it every week on a sitcom? Like she says, I, I don't think I could, it's too scary for her. And here's a Tony award winner. And I said, years ago, Jim and I, my writing partner, we decided to take fear off the table. We just knew when we were starting a script, whether it was on a weekly show or a movie script, we will get there. But why live in the process of writing it? You know, so many, I'm sure you know, artists live in, we were told to suffer for your art. They had to suffer through the whole thing. We decided to take it off the table and just live with the joy of it. Yes, it's gonna be messy and we looked at like snarly hair, we're gonna comb it and make it smooth. Enjoy the process. And it just made life so much more fun and interesting. And coming up with the idea of, you kind of get in trouble in life if you live in the past or the future, but living today is just so beautiful. And things that come in and are there to teach you lessons, even if you haven't figured that out. So that really just kind of changed everything. Because I have so many friends, they'll sell a pilot and I'll call to congratulate them. And they're already like, oh, it's never gonna go. And I'm like, you just sold it. You can't even for a couple of hours bask in the joy of it. I'm like, no, all along the way, you know, even if you're, you know, dealing with the crazy network, like, oh my God, how lucky you are that you have, a, you're doing this and you're dealing with the crazy network or actor or whoever. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm so glad I came about from that, but it was really hard, even just reading Shirley MacLaine. It's like the idea to be judgmental. Oh, you had other lives, I, you know. At first, I probably was like, "Oh, you're insane." I'm like, "Oh, well, if she believes that and she's happy, and I wish more of the world like you're gay, be happy. Why this banning of books and banning of people and like just." If we're not hurting anybody, just leave us alone. We all should, you know, be able to be equal on, on this earth. My God, Stanzerman, thank you so much. Can I get an amen? Taking the time. <laughs> amen. amen. Woo. Uh, the book is out uh, February 13th. Everyone uh, run, don't walk to pre-order the girls. From oh, I'm sorry. Somewhere. I'm sorry. Is this a, is this a, is this a, special bookmark it's a bookmark is this a branded bookmark oh, it is you're holding a loft uh yes so before the book came out i was at the gilmore fan festival and i signed these but also it's very rory gilmore because she was really into books so to have a little bookmark in your thing but um yeah so it's stories about all the wonderful women i work with and roseanne um <sighs> so my publishers made me put Anne roseanne on the back of it uh -huh. <laughs> Just in case I Roseanne they, had, a, they, had a fit. Had the right yeah. idea. Yeah. 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 Just in case Roseanne had a fit. Yeah. Imagine. Like, Let her come at me. <laughs> <laughs> Stan Zimmerman, you are the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. That is our show. Please do give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at homophiliapod. Homophilia is a World of Wonder production, music by Ben Wise. Our executive producer is Renee Colvert. Our associate producer is Jess Walinski, and our audio engineer is Justin Matson. Many thanks to Michael Pressman and everyone at World of Wonder. Music.